Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we discussed the Protestant Reformation from its roots in the so-called heretics until Luther's successful split from the Catholic Church. This week, we'll begin by talking about the Radical Reformation, those groups who took Luther's ideas and ran with them so far that even Luther himself ended up asking for more structure and conformity. We'll also look at the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and finally the religious wars that were the most widespread political ramifications of the schism. Let's begin. All right, we're back on HI101 here with Gary Hallman. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, last time we talked, uh, Luther started doing his thing, and uh, the, the church couldn't quite... Their whole bag of tricks was, was not enough to get Burning old, at the stake. Get old Marty Luther. It's too slippery. Got away. Yep. In a crazy, faked kidnapping, which is just insane. Some guys just popped up on the train and were like, We gotta go back, Marty! Stick them up. This is a hijacking. Yeah. That's what they said. What is it? The church? No, it's your kids. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. People saw that Luther finally got away with it. And they went, hey, I could, I could do that. I got ideas too. He didn't get smoten. He didn't, yeah, basically. He's, he's still alive. I, I'm going to try this too. Guys like uh, Holdrich uh, Zwingli who was this Swiss pastor. And like immediately after Martin Luther made his split, he was like, yep, I'm doing it too. Let's do this thing. I'm, I'm splitting. And Switzerland at this point in time was even tinier than it is now. You know how small Switzerland is? It was like- Very small. It was like 18, about 18. I'll put it in the corrections. About 18 different little states. Yeah, like- He's a really well-known dude because he's the first who really starts talking about this idea of, you know, really bringing baptism into the scene. And, like, that's a subject that gets everybody all crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And and he had a lot of other kind of pet peeves. Again, big on the Sola Scriptura. Everybody's breaking away from tradition. He had a big thing against, like, pageantry and anything ritualistic anything ornamental so he's the guy where you start seeing you know reformation churches that are like bare bones like really sparse like very like almost no decoration that's that's Zwingli's influence on the on the reformation movement where he's going listen covering the whole place in gold that's not that's not really 
what spirituality is about. WWJD. Listen, you know? it looks awesome. We all agree it looks awesome. But can we just can we just like do a little praying maybe? And a little less like looking around at the decorations. And and the interesting thing about him is he was kind of even though he was like one of these new radical reformers, he was still considered moderate compared to everybody else he was dealing with yeah like, he would he would be considered first wave of uh, in in comparison to some of the people that we're going to be dealing with oh yeah like a lot of his disciples ended up trying to take things over to say like look you're you're not being radical enough so yeah and it's it's when you when you said like you know luther let the the cat out of the bag like mm-hmm. things went from like perfectly normal to like whoa crazy yeah. in a small amount of time yeah he was also a big crusader against the whole moral corruption thing he i I get the impression he must have been a real boring guy to be around like not hmm, boring is the wrong word i don't think he was fun no martin luther sounds fun you could party with martin luther i feel like huldrick zwingli was like a really severe guy i bet his i bet his uh his sermons were dynamite but like, I don't think you could grab a beer with him. No. No. I think he would It'd tell be you a very that, boring beer. I feel, I feel like he wouldn't drink the beer. I feel like he would tell you that that was a venal distraction and that you should focus on your thoughts on God and not earthly distractions. Yeah. And then you'd be like, okay, bye Zwingli. Have, <laughs> yeah. have, a, have a good time reading your prayer book, I guess. No, actually, you wouldn't. You'd totally listen to what he had to say because if you knew who Hildrich Zwingli was at this point in time, you were probably either very angry about him or devotedly uh, following his every word. He was very divisive, but very popular with people that did like him. Well, he well, and it's it's not hard to see why. Like again, going back to this concept of everybody being equal, mm-hmm. like that is something that is mind-blowingly radical. Like, mind-blowingly radical. Like, when you're talking about, you know, it's this is the first time that people start talking about, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't just be, like, equal under Christ in the afterlife. Yeah. Maybe we should be equal in Christ right now in the real life, too. Absolutely. Just, you know... And the thing is that the, the justification for that is right there within the Bible. Like you could, you know, I, I could tell you like, yeah, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll all be, we'll all be equal when, when, you know, God's kingdom comes after, after the apocalypse. After but for now, you've got to do what I say. And then, and then you're going to come back and say like, yeah, but Jesus also said that you should create God's kingdom now on earth. And I'm going to be like, okay, well, that's actually a pretty good point. But I'll probably be able to find another verse that contradicts what you have to say as well. And, and like, we'll go back and forth. But the point is that we're having a discussion. And mm-hmm. that's the first time we've actually had the latitude to have this discussion at all. It's not a dictation anymore. It's now a conversation. Exactly. And so this is really, as you commented uh, at one point earlier, a very literate revolution. You had to have people who were literate. You had to have people who were thoughtful about these things. Because without that, it doesn't succeed. It can't succeed. Some of the things that they were against, and and the reason that they were there in the first place was to deal with an illiterate population. For example, Zwingli being against the decorations that are in Catholic churches, like, you know why they put the the stained glass up there, right? It's because people didn't know the Latin, and they didn't, you know, they couldn't 
read the Bible because it wasn't in the vernacular. So to understand the stories, they were creating these, these stained glass depictions of the stories and putting them up in the churches. That was how people came to understand what was going on. And that was the thing that the priest could reference when he was talking about whatever was going on in that week's sermon. Yeah. It was, it was uh, for the sake of education in a society where the book was not something that was accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. And you can really only be Zwingli in a, in a world where people have access to the written word. Because without that iconography, what else do you have? So guys like this, they're, they're in like the middle of what is kind of the further reaches of the empire, I'd mm-hmm. assume. Like yep, that's fair. Is is at this point does the empire try does the empire strike back so to speak? You uh, know, do they do they start to apply pressure and start looking to make examples of people or it sort of de- depends on where you are when you're getting all this uppity and who's in power around you. I mean, the the religious wars that start are almost instantaneous. Like even in the 1520s, you start seeing princes trying to put down protestant denominations that are beginning and you even see uh, luther involved in all of this stuff zwingli himself was targeted by well, he, he was he was involved in a in a in a war that took place that was in some ways a civil war between the states that would eventually become switzerland but were in some ways about putting down the reformed church ideas and he was actually killed in battle during one of these religious wars in Switzerland. So yeah, absolutely, it was incredibly dangerous. But it wasn't necessarily coming from the the highest levels. Switzerland was a relatively autonomous area, mostly because it's remote. Like, it sucks to get there. Well, did you, like, one of the things, they've never been able to confirm this, but at least as far as I've known, but this tradition in Switzerland of yodeling, Mm -hmm. um what a lot of people think it was is during the reformation you'd have these groups of people going into your town to figure like well whose side are you on really so one way that you could warn the neighboring village because you're talking about mountains right so Mm -hmm. it takes a long time yeah for you to get anywhere absolutely so they would like you know it's it's thought that maybe yodeling started as a tradition to warn the neighboring village like hey like you know dude's army is coming over like dude's guys are coming to look hide mm. your bibles interesting very interesting yeah no he, he was yes yeah, Zwingli was killed at, at what was known as the battle of Kappel, which again is is sort of local like you you'd be you'd be more concerned about local magistrates than you would be about like an actual habsburg army because the habsburg had other stuff on their plates yeah i mean you've you've heard the name like they were they're pretty important in in european it's a lot of game of thrones like stuff going on oh absolutely like the the name habsburg is is basically synonymous with like geopolitical machinations at this point in time and for for centuries yeah and i think that's that's something that you can point to as well as to why these ideas were so popular you know you might get like um a great example of this is around the same time is the guy who who started mennonites which would later go on to spawn Amish and Hutterites and all these other sects. Are you referring to Grable or to Menno Simons? To Menno Simons. Yeah. One of the reasons that he found 
you know, a lot of this theology very intriguing, he was also a Catholic priest, mm -hmm. is because they were living in a part of Friesland, um, which is now in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those places where, like, you know, these competing lords would just send their dudes out to say, like, oh, you know, you should actually not be pledging your loyalty to this particular guy. You should be pledging it to the Duke, who's our guy. And if you don't, then we'll kill you. Well, and that was a big issue in the in the Holy Roman Empire is citizenship. Like, what does it mean to be a citizen? How, like, what, what, what are your responsibilities? What are your rights? What is it, like, because that's a fairly clear-cut con uh, uh, concept today. Like, what, yeah. it, what it is to be a citizen. Not always. There's still a little bit of um, ambiguity and a little bit it's of... It's a lot less fluid than what it... Well, that's the thing. If you're be. if you're living in the Holy Roman Empire, but you're living under a certain prince, and your prince asks you to do one thing, and your emperor asks you to do another, who do you follow? Yeah, you follow your conscience is the answer, but that's not a real answer in terms of like your actual uh, citizenship status, especially in in a place like Europe. Like, uh, so often in in North American culture, we forget that in most other places, like ethnicity and citizenship are virtually the same thing yes um so then that adds a whole nother dynamic to it too right like mm -hmm. you know for you know a guy in switzerland what do you care what's going on in the northernmost reaches of the holy roman empire because they speak a different language mm -hmm. they you know it's whole different set of politics going around yep very true Anyways, let's yeah. let's keep moving with the uh, the reformers, I guess, because there's there's a few to get through. Yeah, let's talk about John Calvin. Oh, oh man, things are just getting crazy now. Blood boiling over there. Are you excited? I can't quite tell. Maybe a little of both. John Calvin was a weird guy. Yeah. Well, they they were all kind of weird. They were all kind there. of weird guys. That's fair. He was a French theologian, and. But but he, he moved to Switzerland, which he saw as like a, a hotbed of, of, of reformation because of Zwingli. France wasn't really going through a whole lot at this point in time because, again, France was very monolithic and the church was very closely tied with the, the monarchy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at, at least at this point, you know, it'll change in a couple of decades. But at least at this point, there wasn't a lot of latitude for what was considered heresy or, or what would be called reformation, depending on which side you're on. So he, he, he moved to initially work under Zwingli, but then found that he had a lot of ideas that uh, Zwingli didn't agree with and ended up basically setting up camp opposite Zwingli on a lot of issues. Zwingli, his, his ideas aren't really still around. I mean, there, there are churches left over that would be closer aligned to his ideas than, than others. But for the most part, Calvin basically ended up sealing all of his followers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Zwingli was not willing to bend on certain ideas that, that Calvin was willing to take a lot further. By the way, Zwingli was also the first uh, reformer to deny the truth of or, or, or deny the theology of the truth of transubstantiation. Even Martin Luther wasn't willing to give that up initially. He did later on. But Zwingli was the one that was like, no, this is a metaphor. We are not truly eating like the actual flesh and blood of Christ during the Eucharist, because he was so against, like, as, as we said, the, the pageantry, right? And that included the, the sacraments, the Eucharist, yeah. the baptism. He saw all of this as 
good reminders of your faith, good analogies for your faith, but not actually an active part of your faith life. Yeah, it was a, it was a very literal kind of faith. And then that also leads to with the baptism, like that's, that's again, something that not even Martin Luther, in fact, he was vehemently opposed to it. Mm-hmm. This idea that we shouldn't Adult be baptism. baptizing babies. Yeah. We should wait until they're adults and can understand what the Holy Spirit is before we baptize somebody. Sure. Well, while we're on baptism, actually, let's let's talk about let's talk about the Baptist movements while we're here. Anyways, we can come back to Calvin because he's. I, I want to spend a little bit of time on Calvin. Yeah, because he's an interesting guy. As he oh, had yeah. interesting ideas, but the Radical Reformation, which sounds awesome, by the way, but the Radical Reformation was kind of specifically baptism was a really big sticking point. Uh, the Anabaptist movement was what we're talking about here: adult baptism, and the conflict comes out of what baptism actually is what it actually means and it's a similar conversation as to what we're having with the eucharist whether it actually means literally consuming uh the body of christ or whether it's a symbolic remembrance of the sacrifice that christ uh made for us both of which could be taken from the exact same bible verse both of both interpretations could be taken from the exact same thing but the importance of which is completely different depending on how you interpret it same thing with baptism is baptism the point in time where your body is cleansed of original sin and made pure for god to bestow his forgiveness and his grace upon you or is baptism a public acknowledgement of your of of your uh, willingness to receive god's grace and your acceptance of god's grace and the anabaptist would say it would be the second one and for an anabaptist the act of baptism is so important that they would tell you that being baptized like not all baptisms are equal being baptized and the power that that has and the the spiritual power that that has depends entirely upon your own understanding of your faith yeah and your own acceptance of your faith so if you are baptized in bad faith like if you if you don't truly believe in what you're going through it won't mean anything yeah whereas the 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 infant bapt, uh, baptism is more about symbolically witnessing the moment when god saves you yeah and for the catholic church it was the exact opposite it's you need to cleanse that original sin as quickly as possible yep and and that's something that i always thought was really interesting in that martin luther felt so passionately about this that he wrote many uh infamous letters publicly denouncing that, you know, he really didn't like Anabaptists at all. Basically, he viewed it as, well, you're just, you're baby killers. Like, you're damning babies to to a life of sin. Because he still did have... Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, he, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have said it quite in those words. Oh, you, you know what? Honestly, he might have. Uh, he was a pretty dyna- dynamic speaker, and he wasn't afraid of strong rhetoric. But, you know, I don't have that on record either. He saw... He, he still had an idea of purgatory. And so, if someone died before they were baptized, he still saw it as being an issue of, of what happens to that soul after death. Whereas an Anabaptist would say, no, everyone's saved by the grace of God. And, yeah. and, and through God's grace, because of that, that gift of God's grace, everyone is going to go to heaven. The act of baptism is more about coming into your own within the church, within the organization, within the, the, the social and, and uh, cultural organization that is the church and acknowledging your own spiritual growth. And yes, that is a blessed thing, but it is blessed because of the work that you personally have put into it. And it is blessed because 
that's what God has deemed uh, correct, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, but but if you were never to be baptized, or if if you were to die before you were baptized, I should say that doesn't necessarily mean in an Anabaptist tradition that you would be damned. Qu- quite the opposite, in fact. Yeah, I guess when a, it's it's interesting because I was just just reminded while we're talking about this that it's been it was such a passionate disagreement let's call it Mm -hmm. that it's only been really resolved like it's only been resolved within the past couple years yeah these traditions of the radical reformation you see a a massive splintering and to somebody like luther he saw them as anarchists he couldn't yeah he, he couldn't wrap his mind around how this could still be christianity but he also didn't really have a leg to stand on because he's the one that started it. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what the Anabaptist way of looking at it kind of was, is, you know, he was preaching this different message, and when the Anabaptists had their own ideas about what it was, there was a lot of, I guess, shock at that really powerful disagreement, so much so that he did write publicly that it was okay to kill Anabaptists. Really? And it, it did... Like the persecution of Anabaptists is this like long going thing. It it something that happens for for hundreds of years. Well, let's talk about why beyond the beyond the adult baptism, which really let's face it isn't worth that level of hostility. Some of the other main commonalities of the different faiths that grew up out of radical reformation were extreme pacifism. Yeah, and uh, complete church and state ref- uh, separation, which was completely unheard of. But they were saying that their spiritual life should have nothing to do with their political life. And that, I, I mean, these are, these are the people that are first advocating for the separation of church and state are incredibly devout, almost uncomfortably devout for the, the majority of people. Groups that are saying like, you know what, you go and fight your war. I don't consider myself enough of a part of this country or this principality or this political organization. I don't consider myself primarily a member of that to the point where I'm willing to go against the commandments of my faith and kill. And it's really interesting to see, you know, just how far down the line that the relationship between religion and government. Um, You can even look at, you know, these groups like Quakers and... The Puritans um, that came over to Plymouth Rock in the 1620s were based in this radical reformation. They were reformers. They were uh, initially millennials, which will or millenarians, sorry, uh, which we'll get to shortly, well, probably next. But they they were also extreme pacifists, and they were strongly for the separation of church and state. And you see that eventually in the formation of the United States. But the reason that they left was because they persecuted for wanting that separation and for believing so strongly in that pacifism. Because you know, the Puritans specifically were English, but they weren't really supporting the English crown because they didn't feel like it was more important than their spiritual. Oh life. yeah, like a lot of a lot of the Puritans get this like kind of comical bad rap today about how, you know, they were Europe's unwanted, crazy, hardcore religious nuts. But really, you know, in, in even, a lot of even ways, though there were some values are quite liberal. Oh yeah. You know, the the idea that there should be a more you know these these tenets of equality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know these these are things that end up going on to be a major, oh, major philosophies pick. of the founding of equality, North American societies. Equality, pacifism, 
personal confession of faith, separation of church and state. All of this stuff is like, like too progressive for most people to handle. Oh, oh yeah. And this is where you get. We talked briefly about Menno Simons, who would go on to uh, to be considered the founder of the Mennonites. Uh, Conrad Grable, uh, a lot of like extremely famous. Thomas Munster. Thomas Munster, yeah. Who who would go on to you know. You, you trace the line down, and there's lots of branches, but you're looking at the, the Mennonites, the Hutterites, the Amish, different Puritan branches, uh, the Quakers, as you mentioned, all of these different groups that would go on to be persecuted all over the world before they found their homes, usually in North America, where they were less persecuted. Like, I mean, still definitely marginalized. But in, a lot in a of them ways. definitely got the, got the heck out of Dodge, that's for sure. Like, a lot of them moved to Russia, to what was then. Yep. And they, they think things did not go well for them there. No. I, I know a in, number of not people. Not in the end. Yeah, I know I know a number of people from that background, from the from the Russian Mennonite background that have have family members that personally still remember things. Uh, oh yeah. From, from, I, in the beginning it was it was a great Yeah, it was a great setup. Yeah, Russia was a Russia Russia's a funny place like that. We're way off topic, but it, it, it can swing from the most tolerant and progressive place to the most iron-fisted totalitarian state so quickly and if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, you know there's nothing you can do about it but it's difficult being a minority in russia sometimes it's fine but when the wind turns it can be really difficult to be a minority in russia yeah well i mean really it's it's tough to be a minority everywhere oh of course of course um and you you find like there's also lots of because these were ethnically German Dutch mm-hmm. people who were moving out to Ukraine. And I think people really forget that back then you you might be able to go 30 miles down the road and they might speak a completely different language than you do. Absolutely. Uh, you know, people people forget that travel was was pretty well restricted. Yep. Um, and just going back to your one point, like that's one of the theories they had about. Um, France and and why you know um, German languages were a little bit more similar, but in in some pockets of of Europe, like you could go two hours down the road and they might literally speak a different language that's completely unrelated to your language. Yeah, this was something I talked about with uh, with our good friend Dan in German unification. That the Germany was like Ger- German is German, and there are there are dialects and there are accents and things like that, but it's fairly strongly the same language. You can pretty much speak German, you know, in most places throughout what would become Germany and Austria. A lot of that is because it was so decentralized and they needed some sort of way to relate to each other. Yeah. In France, uh, they were so politically and ethnically uh, united that they could afford to have all of these different dialects and still get along with their life just fine because the guy four miles down the road, he may have talked a little funny, but he was French. He was a Frenchman. Yeah. Whereas when you're German, the guy four miles down the road might be not only in a completely different uh, state than you, but that state might be completely differently organized than yours. And you very well may end up fighting each other in a war at some point. Oh, yeah. Very easily. And then you add in like the Alps and it's like, well, you know, they might be 30, 40 miles as Mm -hmm. a bird flies, but they might as well be on a different planet as far as you're concerned. But yeah, this 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 sort of spread out of uh, this spreading of of these different radical groups. Eh, ra- radical, it it's funny. It either makes it sound like super cool or like super dangerous, and it's not 
necessarily either of those things now looking back but at the time it was considered quite dangerous like the the ideas that they were putting forward and especially uh it's you know anabaptists kind of look at back at this as a little bit of a a humorous note is people people look back at a lot of these splinter groups now as you know the beginning of these very like peaceful movements there was also a, a lot crap of load of doomsday cults that came yeah. out of this who were yeah, like the millenarians oh they're, yeah they're like all this about is believing that the end is like you, you look at it and a lot of them are saying like the end is coming now like the and things that are going easy on to see why because things have just gotten crazy the whole world is upside down the they're they're comparing the pope to the antichrist frequently i mean that's that's still a thing i've i've heard happen once in a while uh but it was it was to to a level where it's not just rhetoric where they actually believe that he was heralding the coming of the apocalypse you have you know this this realization that there's an entire other half of the world you have uh the splintering of all of these religious groups it starts playing on these notes in the bible specifically in revelations that start looking really alarming and people now have their hands on it they can look through revelations and the funny thing about revelations is that a lot of the stuff in there is so vague that you could apply it to just about anything in your life but this is the first time people have had their hands on revelations to look at it read the signs in there look around at the world around them and say yeah this fits i think we might be in end times yeah no it's it's perfectly logical like i mean you could you could not blame them for for seeing all the crazy things that were going on and uh and thinking that it actually was the end times because you've got roving bands of like hyper religious religiously fueled people going around doing crazy things the city of munster for example uh 1535 is a sane (laughs) millenarian john of leiden who essentially locks down the entire city expels the catholic bishop who had been ruling it creates this weird doomsday polygamous cult type situation and starts fighting off all comers that are trying to liberate the people of the city and the city buys into it this that they all go insane at the exact same time buying into this odd version of christianity that is entirely backed up by the scriptures if you interpret it in a certain way but john of leighton is telling them how to interpret it and they they go for it because he's telling them that the end times are here and this is the best way to survive them. And if you have just been taken over by a crazy cult leader who is making all of the girls marry him and all of this stuff, yeah, maybe you need a little bit of spiritual help. Maybe you should at least pick a side and hope for the best. Yeah, no kidding. Now, he was overthrown incredibly violently. It did not go well for him. But, I, I mean, the city of Munster in 1535 is a really good example of just how how crazy the reformation could get because i think you're right you you have this idea of like this this incredibly like well no i believe that that people should be baptized when they're yeah. when they're adults no i believe they should be baptized when they're children well i i think i'm going to found my own church but this was a pleasant conversation thank you very much no no they were they were killing each other left right and center it was crazy oh yeah but so many people are dying. But this, this is point. this intersection of a time when people have more access to information than they have the capacity to productively um, like or constructively digest, yeah. um, interpret or yeah, yeah, digest perfectly. So, so yeah, you have you, you have this overlap where people have this this medieval devotion, like blind devotion to their faith, mixed with this very modern 
idea of personal confession to their faith. So all of a sudden, whereas, you know, three centuries before this, you and I could both be like blindly devoted to the exact same faith and have no problem. Now you and I are both reading the Bible, getting completely different reads out of it, still incredibly devoted to it. And it could easily come to incredible violence and often did. Oh yeah. And I mean, there's all sorts of, of stories of, you were talking about cities getting taken over under like the weirdest circumstances. And that's a function of the, the Holy Roman empire being divided into more than 200 States. Yeah. They're, they're very small things that are being taken over, which is why people can actually take them over and why it takes the emperor so long to get around to dealing with that. Yeah. It, I, I can't remember the name, but there was a, a really famous story of, of worms um, where somebody had come, one of these new splinter groups had come and taken over the city with like a very small force of people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it was the kind of thing where like basically most of the standing defenders left, ran away, got a whole lot of reinforcements, and we're going to come back and absolutely destroy the invaders. Right. But their leader was like, don't worry, guys. It's the end time. Like, we'll be fine. We'll, we'll be raptured before yeah. they come back. And three days later, they came and brutally slaughtered yeah. everybody. And, and you hear about some of these guys, and, and it's reminiscent of stuff you hear on the news like it sounds like jonestown or it sounds like yeah the, exactly uh, I was just oh, what are they called the, the group that that all ascended to Halebop wearing uh nikes and oh yeah heaven's heaven's, heaven's gate? gate yeah i think i think it was heaven's gate it's 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 that's the exact thing or you know don't worry guys the comet is coming to take us away yeah you know don't don't worry the rapture is coming for us it says we'll right here in the bible mm-hmm. if you I, interpret it that way. if you interpret it that way and and that's the thing all of a sudden everyone's and, and that's I don't know that that's necessarily an argument for tradition, necessarily. But I, I think it does say something about uh, Luther's trust in this, the general person and his trust in the uh, the divinity of the scripture to guide the people reading it. And the fact that he was kind of misguided on those points, to some extent at least. Because clearly people were reading it in much different ways than he thought they should be yeah he he reacted fairly differently than i think i don't know maybe one might have expected like or maybe it's perfectly logical for him to come to this conclusion like as much as he didn't like the the church Mm -hmm. he had a a very good reputation for really not liking any of these splinter groups even more so a lot of the time you know there's there's lots of stories where you know these new Protestants and Catholics would actually gang up and you know concentrated efforts to mm-hmm. make sure that they were persecuting these new guys even more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, but put yourself in in Luther's shoes. He's just made proclamations that essentially, if you read the Bible, it's impossible to interpret it wrong. That's a pretty big statement to make. Yeah. And then there are all these people who are interpreting it, you know, quote unquote, wrongly. Yeah, of course he's going to be upset. He's going to be... I mean, his core belief has just been logically proven to be incorrect. Yeah. And so, yeah, he digs in. He he formalizes Lutheranism. We talked about the catechisms that he writes. He, he We talked about the German mass that he writes. He's working at this point in time on, you know, writing hymns for his masses, things like that. He's, he's essentially creating a, a shadow Catholic church because he feels like, no, these, these guys are out of control. We need a little bit more order than that. I don't 
think he necessarily saw himself as setting, uh, you know, as, as stepping into the role of of Pope. That would be the last thing that he would ever he would ever do intentionally. But when you look at sort of the course that he took with with his version of this religion, he's very much reacting to these splinter cells going, no, that's not enough guidance. We need like a little bit. We still need to let it be open to everyone to form their own interpretations, but we can't just go like willy-nilly deciding whatever we want. And yeah, he ends up really formalizing things to some extent. And I think if you if you're approaching it from perspective of you know a religion as a business and uh gaining followers as being the the primary motivation i think it was really good for lutheranism in terms of you know making those gains because he's giving them a package deal it's already set up they don't have to worry about any weird people showing up yeah and, and trying to get them in any any doomsday and cults you gotta think that there's probably a lot of people who found some of the tenants very attractive but like you don't just shed you know over a thousand years of tradition years of yeah yeah yeah. like a thousand years worth of history and tradition Mm -hmm. in in the span of a couple years and so okay so you're 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 living in germany it's you know let's say 1525 1530 somewhere in there and your options are the catholic church which you have vast problems with because of the corruption that's involved Mm -hmm. you know maybe you're not entirely convinced of certain aspects of their dogma yeah Option B being crazy death cult. <laughs> and option C being this thing that looks an awful lot like the church that you're used to. But he's still got like the good juicies. But he's, he's got like, yeah, he's got stuff. like some some interesting, new, fun, hip ideas. This is like, this is like a, this is like a priest skateboards with the youth group. Yeah, basically. Exactly. Basically, it's, it's that's what Luther is. <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll drink mead with the youth group. Yeah. <laughs> Let's bounce back to John Calvin, who we were going to talk yeah. about. And then completely abandon. John Calvin was an interesting dude. Uh, again, following in the steps of Zwingli in, uh, in Geneva. The main feature of Calvinism that everybody loves to talk about is predestination. Basically, Calvin said, God decided before time even existed, certain people are going to be saved and certain people are not going to be saved. And that is how it is because God knows everything and he knows what you're going to do in your life. And he is going to decide from that information whether or not you are worthy of salvation. It's kind of a raw deal. It sucks being a Calvinist, dude. Yeah. So your best bet, if you're a Calvinist and if you like work out what your best bet is for getting into heaven, it's to live a life as though you have been saved by God because you can lose your salvation if you if you live badly. So your best bet is to live as though... Yeah, you'd think it would backfire. You, like you'd think it'd be some people would be like, clearly I'm one of the chosen. You've told me I'm such. I'm a part of this church. Sure. So, but no, not all Calvinists like, are even uh, saved. There isn't anything uh, saying, saying that guaranteed all bets every are Calvinist. Yeah. Every, all bets are off. So your best bet is to leave, live as though you've already been saved and hope that you have, A, have been saved, and B, don't lose that salvation by messing up. It's very stressful. Calvinists are very somber, very severe people. <laughs> I don't know many. <laughs> yeah. I don't know many modern Calvinists. I know that this idea of predestination has definitely been refined, softened quite a bit. Some might say. since what John Cal- since what John, John Calvin was saying, but yeah, it's it's a rough deal. And a lot of people I find have a lot of trouble with this idea of predestination because they're kind of going, well, yeah, but it, you know, if 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 God knows everything and nothing can change, it's not and really you're living that well. way, then what does it matter? And 
That's the problem, because we're talking about a world before humanism where the idea of free will isn't necessarily a given, right? Mm -hmm. Because free will is the enemy of predestination. Predestination can't exist in a world with free will, because if you're predestined for one fate or the other, then your will isn't truly free. You're already destined to live the life that you're going to live, and any decisions that you make are an illusion. Mm -hmm. Whereas if there is free will, then how could God possibly predestine you for one fate or the other? Because God is, you know, 100% good. Right. But they're also saying that God doesn't forg- or doesn't save everyone. It's a rough, rough go. Right. So Calvinism, that it, it's interesting because it's playing with ideas that a lot of other denominations don't touch for centuries here. Because free will is a tricky concept, philosophically speaking. This isn't a discussion we're going to get into right yeah. now. But it's, it's difficult to, to, to deal with religiously because if people have the capacity to mess up God's plan, then how can God be omnipotent and omniscient? And if God isn't those things, then that means that he's not like, like the supreme deity. Like he could potentially, because he isn't at full potential of his power, then there is room for improvement and that's not a quality of God. So, it, oh man, you, you start getting your brain all twisted up into, into knots trying to figure this out and how this works. But yeah, Calvinism was very, very severe, very strict, and basically offered very little assurance of salvation. The people that followed Calvin were... I, I think you could say probably people with a very bleak outlook on the world around them. The one thing that I think people don't consider about predestination is that there is a certain comfort level to knowing that things are already figured out and like what whatever yeah. you do doesn't matter because it's already sorted and God has a plan for it and how you fit into that plan has already been decided so it doesn't matter. It frees you a little bit from that whole sort of salvation by works aspect of, of Catholicism. It, it removes that completely because either you've been saved by God already or are destined to be saved by God at the time of your death or you're not. And so he's, it's decided there is a certain level of peace to that resignation. Yeah. Right. And I think this is probably the one that's held up the least well in terms of philosophies. Yeah. It didn't make the transition to the modern world very well. It discounts the individual too much, whereas most other Protestant denominations uh really focus on the individual's will and the individual's capacity for affecting their own salvation i've heard surprisingly that the calvin church is is still big in like one of the places where it still has some relevance is in like nordic countries nordic countries in scotland the whole uh, presbyterian church is is based in calvinism uh, it's been tempered really? a little bit. Yeah, Presbyterian is, is, a, is a directly Calvinist movement. Huh. But other than that, the Reformed Church tends to be Scandinavian, and there's a, a very specific group of Reformed churches in Switzerland, naturally. Mm-hmm. But the, the, biggest, the biggest outliers outside of Switzerland are, like, yeah, some of those churches in, in the Scandinavian countries, but especially Scotland. Presbyterian, Calvinist. So are they related to, like, Dutch Reform? Dutch Reform is, I believe, I'm going to get this wrong, but Dutch Reform, I believe, is more Anabaptist okay. than it is based in Calvinism. The The Netherlands tended to be much more radical revolution wave oh, Protestant. Yeah. So I, that, that, would be my, that would be my instinct there. 
They don't even have Christmas trees. They don't even have Christmas trees. In general, see, here's the thing. I had I had a I had a second year or sorry I had a first year course one time that I was taking as a you know I think I was in third or fourth year or something like that, and it was online. And the worst thing about online courses is that they're essentially internet forums that you get marks for. Uh, it's the worst. It's it's, it's like okay, terrible. I'll do my two mandatory posts for the week. Yeah. And I've never seen a comment so derided on one of these boards as some poor 17-year-old who I kind of, like, looking back now, kind of envy their fairly rosy outlook on life, (laughs) who wrote in response to a question about how the Reformation uh, affected political life in Europe, wrote that the Reformation was a religious matter and had no real uh, impact on politics in Europe because spirituality and politics are so separate they got taken to town like to a point where i kind of felt a little bit bad no but they're wrong and and they they are definitely wrong because when you look at the way i I mean outside of all the religious ta going over this thing being like no no d minus yeah you wrote something but i need to yeah anyways because if you look at the adoption the first places that it spreads are in the, the northernmost parts of Germany, in what would become the Netherlands, uh, in Switzerland, in the Scandinavian countries, in Scotland, places that are kind of on the outliers of their political sphere, mm-hmm. and the places that are physically furthest away from the Vatican. Because places in southern Germany tended to stay Catholic. Very Catholic. Uh, the Holy the Roman Empire, which is Austrian, which is further south, and has a lot more on the line when it comes to retaining tradition, stayed Catholic. I mean, the, the seat wasn't in Austria at the time, but you get the point. Spain, Italy, uh, France, all stayed Catholic. So very central places and more southern places tended to stay Catholic, while further north places and more isolated and more alienated places it tended to go Protestant. And what you're definitely seeing there is a reaction politically. It's a way, as we discussed earlier, of demarcating yourself from the standard establishment. Because you're not facing the threat of excommunication anymore because you're part of a new movement Mm -hmm. that can't excommunicate you, that values your own interpretation of the faith. And, you know, while you can still fear military repercussions from the empire or political repercussions from the empire, you no longer have to worry about your soul. Yeah. And that's a very liberating thing. That's a very liberating thing. Let's uh, let's talk about England real quick. Let's just get England over with. Yeah. Because I feel like at some point I want to go over the transition from the Tudors to the Stuarts because it's a really interesting story. So I'll probably get a lot more in depth on That's it. It's like a whole episode. Easily. Itself. Yep. It's a very big story. Um, I really want to do it. I, I, I haven't found a guest that wants to do it yet, but I haven't really proposed it to that many people. And generally I want people to come to me, but that's a different issue. I, I plan I plan at some point on having that episode made. So we'll just breeze right through it. I know what you're asking yourself, Gary. Hey, wh- what's what's the deal with Anglicanism? Where does the Anglican Church come from? They're like Catholics, but they're not like Catholics. <laughs> what, what is the deal with the Anglicans? They're always threatening to become Ang- to become Catholics and then they're not Catholics. Basically what happened is England was solidly Catholic. They were, the, they, they were the prime example of a country that should have stayed Catholic. They had a strong centralized government. 
they had a a number of marginalized groups under them that they could have kept subjugated through religion mm-hmm. uh, the irish the scottish even the welsh um it, it, it was perfect as long as they had the church on their side great then in uh 1529 um henry VIII decided that his wife catherine, catherine of aragon had had enough tries at giving him a male heir wasn't working out and he asked pope uh, clement the seventh for an annulment which basically means, hey, can you make my marriage invalid so that I can marry somebody else? And Pope Clement said, no. <laughs> and it wasn't that this was a weird request. It's a kind of thing that happens all the time. He was really busy with a bunch of other stuff that was going on at this point in time. He kind of, it wasn't even so much that he was like, no, dog, you're stuck with her. It was more like, I've got other things on my plate right now. Can you just like pump the brakes a little bit? Henry was an interesting guy. There's a lot I could say about Henry VIII. He's a very polarizing character because he was such a strong character. Infamous, you might say. You could say infamous. Well, he decided that it was taking too long. So he said, okay, well, I'm starting my own church, but with divorces. And blackjack. And blackjack. And And basically said, well, everyone else is on on the continent is doing this. Why don't I just start my own? But I'll be the Pope of this one. And I make the rules. And I say divorce is fine. Bye, Catherine. <laughs> and that was where Anglicanism came from. And for the first years, Anglicanism was very similar to Catholicism, just with the king instead of the pope. Hmm. A bunch of Catholic bishops were uh, transitioned over to be Anglican bishops rather than, than Catholic. There were some that refused to, and they were replaced by the king. Uh, he just pretty much supplanted himself at the top of that structure. Then Henry VIII dies. Um, the the throne goes to his son, Edward VI, who, let's face it, was too young to really have a lot of say in policy. But his protectors, his advisors, basically said, yeah, you should really Protestant thing. Protestant's so hot right now. You should go Protestant. <laughs> he's like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to, you know, transition some of the theological aspects of, of Anglicanism closer to uh, Lutheranism. But Edward was a really sick kid. Like, he, he, he wasn't well for any of his life like i i I can't imagine it he just had a really rough life and he died very young the throne went to his sister mary who half sister mary who was uh devoutly catholic because of her mother and she said actually never mind about that whole protestant thing oh is that is that like mary queen of scots the same mary no different mary um okay (laughs) yeah i know there were a bunch of marys not that far apart but anyways she decided to take everything back Catholic and all the nobles are like, oh, I guess we're Catholic again. Yay, Catholic. And then Mary died a couple of years later. Elizabeth took the throne. She's like, actually, we're all Protestant again. And Yay. everyone's like, I don't know what to do. Which just tell just tell me which church to go to. And that's where Anglicanism comes from. After Elizabeth was queen for so long that any hopes of really restoring a Catholic monarch kind of died out. There was one kind of last push during uh, during the Stuart years, just before the English Civil War, where the king seemed to have like really strongly Catholic leaning tendencies. He he was Scottish. He was uh, he was a member of the Stuart family that they had brought down after the death of Elizabeth with no heirs. Right? They kind of found the closest family member, and they were like, maybe we can get this guy. Like the Catholics that were left in the in the country kind of hoping for a restoration kind of went like, let's get this guy on our side. Let's get Catholicism brought back in. And then the guy was too much of a jerk and Parliament had him 
beheaded basically because he wouldn't apologize like they gave him so many chances english civil war again completely different topic but uh that was basically the last chance after that anglicanism is going to stay in england forever so i guess the next question is what's the church been up to all this time this has all been spreading around like what are the catholics doing about Meanwhile, this on the continent let's take a quick break and then we'll check back in with them see what they're up to yeah all right All right, we're back on HI 101 here with Gary Hallman. Yeah. And we're going to talk about what them Catholics are up to. Uh, what are they up to? Well, it took them a real long time to even acknowledge that there was any sort of problem whatsoever. Yep, sounds about right. Uh, a lot but, of the problems... So, they... you're, so you're telling me that this, this ancient organization had trouble being flexible? Their, their response time was surprisingly slow. Yeah, no, they, they're not... The most maneuverable of organizations <laughs> and it's not it's not that they didn't want to deal with it it's that there were so many other things going on around this time that they were trying to mediate there were there there are constantly regional conflicts that honestly aren't even worth getting into on this show that the the pope ends up right in the middle of because he is also a military power right this so, is probably like the worst time in history to be pope Oh, wouldn't you hate to be like? The, can you imagine you being that pope? pope to be like, why is this happening to me? Like being Pope Leo the Tenth, like the guy that did the indulgences that made Martin Luther quit the church. Uh, like he probably feels real bad, <laughs> <laughs> real bad. His biographer had a real hard time just tiptoeing around that one. Yeah, he spent exactly. a lot of chapters on how it wasn't his fault. I'm so sorry. Leo. <laughs> yeah, it would be a terrible time to be Pope. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, their response was to call the council, which is kind of a typical response to any sort of turmoil or upheaval. Uh, is it a Pope's move? Kind of is. Okay. Pope's move. You know, Paul Paul III calls this, this council, Council of Trent. Originally, a lot of the delay was that they were trying to get all of these bishops and priests who had essentially quit the church to attend because they don't see this council as being okay there's been a reformation how do we move forward in this brave new world it's uh there's all these heretics how do we get people back on the correct path how do we bring the lambs back into the fold so to speak exactly so they're getting a lot of pushback from like who can attend because a lot of them are going like you're the Oh, I'm not listening to you. Like, what do you think this whole thing has been about? You get other ones that are basically, they've been excommunicated on certain grounds that they like don't really have authority to represent themselves or their congregations in the Vatican anymore because of the level to which they've been expelled from the church. And then you have, you know, the big players who just won't show up. Luther won't go to this thing. He's he got his own thing now. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and and besides, he won't do it on their terms. And I mean, they, they took so long to set it up that actually uh, Luther died just a, a year after the, the council was convened. So, I mean, even if he had actually come to it, he wouldn't have had much time to really contribute. I mean, you know, the, the, the Council of Trent started in 1545. That's like 25 years after this whole thing began. That's a long time to, to respond to something as large... And as widespread as the Reformation, 
but it, I think it also really speaks to the uh, the ground level sort of spread of this. It's not a top down thing. It's not a it's not something that you can really fix with a council mm-hmm. because it's 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 a it's a popular movement, and that's a lot harder for something like the Catholic Church to fix. Yeah. So mostly, what the council did was reaffirm a whole lot of catholic beliefs that were being refuted by various protestant sects things like you know transubstantiation salvation by works the authority uh, the authority of the pope you, you have to remember that that their justification for their own authority comes from the lineage that comes directly from the apostle uh, peter who jesus told directly you know that he was giving him the keys to his church that's like they're saying like yeah and that guy passes it down to the next one and the next one and the next one through the organization of the church all of these protestants are saying "Mm, no he's he's symbolically giving it to all of his followers and that includes every single person who considers himself a christian so you don't have a monopoly on communion with god anyways all of that kind of reminds me of you know kind of that whole is it the masses or am i out of touch no it is the masses. Yeah, 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 exactly. There's a couple of other big things that come out of this, notably uh, the foundation of a few religious orders, and most notable of those would be the Jesuits. The Jesuits are... Really? Yeah, the Jesuits are a really interesting organization in that they were basically set up as like a counter-reformation army. They were founded by this guy named Ignacio of, Lo- of Loyola, who was this this uh, Spanish priest who wanted to found an order that was basically there to refute all of the points of the Reformation. And they were actually really good at it. Like, See, that's so interesting because, like, when you think about Catholic orders today, like, the Jesuits are thought of as, like, the most liberal and the most... It depends um, on how you uh, how you classify these things, though, because the way that they were doing it wasn't with, like anti-doomsday cults it was by going in there and refuting these ref, uh, these reformers point by point so it was like a were, non-violent it was non-violent oh, okay, okay yeah no, okay. No, i i, I used when you the said army. army i was like well isn't that interesting i, I, I meant it yeah no I, I i very much meant it uh metaphorically like a spiritual army they would go in and they were I, and i mean to this day the jesuits have a reputation for being both highly educated and for being uh extremely well grounded that's pope a, Jesuit. The first Jesuit Pope ever. Yep. And uh, a lot of people have seen that as a symbolic move towards, you know, reform within the church. A lot of people like the new Pope. He does a pretty good job of uh, presenting himself well. Yep. Yep. He seems like a, he seems like a pretty okay guy. Good, good job, new Pope. But like the, the Jesuits have always been about the Counter-Reformation. And one of the hallmarks of the Counter-Reformation was... That during this Council of Trent, which, by the way, stretched over three popes it went so long. The council lasted... What? Yeah, no, the council lasted until 1563. So, it was eight years long. Wow. Sorry, 18 years long. Yeah, I was gonna say, they went through three popes in eight years? Yeah, it happens. So, yeah, they, they condemned Luther as heretical, sure. But 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 they also, they also started addressing problems within the administration they kind of get okay we got to get this indulgence thing under control yeah it's 25 to 30 to 50 years late but hey at least they fixed it yeah for the most part they did they they, they did get a handle on it again i think that's very much an issue of too little too late but you know nothing says 
take a good hard look at yourself like a significant portion of the population just completely abandoning you as a as a spiritual or moral structure the uh, the jesuits the, the other thing that they did uh, besides like going into say zurich for example and basically debating guys like calvin was missionary work so the jesuits ended up being like first on the ground into uh, north america trying to convert native bands they were uh, moving into Africa. At this point in time, Portugal had uh, colonies all along the coast of Africa. It was these trading posts that they were first using to sail into the Indian Ocean. So they were going into those areas and, and uh, setting, up church, uh, setting up churches, setting up missions. They were going into the Far East. You know, you have Jesuits at this point in time trying to break into Japan and, and set up. That far, eh? Yeah, Japan and China. And, and, and with some, some moderate success, for example, in um, Korea, a lot, of the, a lot of the current movements within Korea in terms of Christianity stem from this initial push by the Jesuits in like the 17th century, the 16th century. Huh. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, the, like at, at home, the Jesuits were doing things like one of their main strategies was moving the rhetoric around the, the end times away from current times because it was so popular to compare the the papacy to the that they were taking revelations and basically saying either that refers to things that happened hundreds of years ago and it's it's revelations about the roman emperor at the time which is a a fairly common interpretation of uh, revelations today or they were saying listen we're not at end times yet. Like we're so far away. Like we, we haven't even gotten close to it. It's going to be ages down the road. Just mm-hmm. trying to like spread that away and, and take the wind out of the sails of the millenarian movements. And they were actually fairly successful at stemming the, the spread of, of Protestantism in certain areas. But again, it wasn't through this sort of rabid devotion. It was, it was very new tactic for the the church it wasn't inquisition tactics it wasn't you know ham-fisted uh, maybe we stop torturing people maybe, maybe we stop torturing people it was a, an incredibly logical incredibly well-reasoned very rational approach to all of this now today you would call them apologists because they're they're trying to you know rationalize their faith through evidence that's that's uh, intrinsic in that faith but when, when you look at what they're at the problem that they're trying to deal with and their effectiveness they're absolutely doing what they set out to do now obviously they didn't stop the reformation we have plenty of different denominations of christianity but they're often credited for keeping it from being a, a bigger movement Complete than it was collapse yeah essentially it's an interesting order they've they've done some interesting things over the years it's you know like, like any of these it's got its high points and its low points but the their their uh their interest in both real change in the the actual wide world and their devotion to education and to sort of intelligent exam examination of faith is 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 really interesting stuff Mm -hmm. so what is this even like why do we even care about this in the context of of europe what what, how did this affect europe exactly besides like all of these people picking their own favorite doomsday cults like the answer wars yeah and the interesting thing about it is that the protestant side lost almost every single war that we're going to talk about Really? Yeah. Huh. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? A little bit. Because you'd think that if they lost all these wars, well, why is Protestantism still a thing? Well, there's a funny thing about martyrs. 
There is that, but there's a little bit more like political reason for it. Let's start with the one that I really don't know how to say it. Maybe you can help me out, actually. It, it was called the Schmalkaldic War? Yeah, let me see. It's the Schmalkaldic War. You got the confirmation on that? Hey, you speak German. Yep, no, that's... I'll, that's, I'll trust you That's on a this. good pronunciation. Thanks, man. I do, I do my best. Usually it's not very good, I'll be honest your, with you. Your but... schma was first-rate schma. Awesome. Anyways, this is in like the <laughs> mid-1540s, uppity group of Protestant principalities within the Holy Roman Empire. And basically they decide to take on the emperor. They're like, no, we're, we want freedom of religion. We want freedom of expression. And the only way we're going to get that, like individually, he's going to steamroll every single one of us. If we don't band together, we're never going to get anywhere. It's so like they, German Braveheart. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> If we're looking for analogies, it works perfectly. I, I can't think of a better one. Yeah, I'll it's, give you that. You don't even need to change anything. Sure. <laughs> and they all yelled freedom and charged. Freedom! Uh, <laughs> they lost. They lost real bad. But Charles V, in the settlements, like in the, in the, uh, in the treaties to settle all of this stuff, and it took years, by the way, to, to get all of it worked out because there were so many people involved. In the settlement... He acknowledged their religion as legitimate and not a heresy. That was part of the concession that was given in order for the Schmalkaldic uh, League to stop fighting the emperor. That is a big deal. That is the first official confirmation of Lutheranism as a, a legitimate religion. Bad military defeat, huge spiritual victory. This actually ended up leading to Charles V's uh, resignation. He ended up... like. Things went so badly because of that that proclamation that Protestantism was a real thing, that it was a legitimate thing, that he ended up abdicating in, in favor of one of his sons. Really? Yeah, he ended up actually kind of splitting up the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire actually slowly between two of his sons. So it was kind of in some ways you could point to the beginning of the end of the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, certainly as an unopposed political force, if not necessarily the, the entire end of the, the empire, because that's going to come hundreds of year, years later during the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. Basically, the concession in, in, in this, this treaty, and it was, um, it was known as the Peace of Augsburg, that, that any prince is allowed to choose the religion of their own state within the Holy Roman Empire mm-hmm. and choose specifically between Catholic and Lutheran. Just, just those two. And if you lived in a prince bishopric, which is a state which is ruled by a Catholic bishop, then as an individual, you are allowed to practice Lutheranism freely. Hmm. Those are big concessions. Yeah, huge. They're really big concessions. And for a losing side, they just gained a lot of ground. Really, like a lot of ground. But I mean, it's kind of forward thinking when you think, this wasn't a problem that was going to go away. Like, it was going to be a reoccurring uprising. Right, but that's not always an easy thing to see in the moment. Looking yeah. back, absolutely. But, you know, when this thing is signed in 1555, it's been 40 years? Yeah, okay. That's not a long time, really. Yeah. In terms of grassroots movements, like, yeah, if it was a, if it was a political upheaval from the top down, if there was a coup then yeah, absolutely, you can see which way the wind is blowing. But I don't even really necessarily know how long they had been aware that all of these people have been reading their German books of prayer. 
Another major one, a major one, was the Eighty Years' War, also the known as the War of Dutch Independence, where essentially the what's now the Netherlands. I mean, it's a loose analogy because all of these states move around so much over the centuries ensuing. But all of the states that are now considered Dutch basically said, "All right, we're done with this stupid empire. <laughs> we want out," and it turned into just this huge, like this long drawn out war with like some of the like craziest things that went down went down in the netherlands yeah it's a tiny little area but oh man yeah like especially in like friesland yeah crazy things going down yeah and i mean the dutch republic it wouldn't have lasted if they hadn't gotten support from england and france who didn't necessarily you know england has supported the netherlands for a long time because it's basically right off their coast and they like having friendly states nearby on the continent and there was also a little bit of kind of protestant support going on there but it wasn't really their main uh motivation yeah and france just liked messing with the habsburgs they hated the habsburgs they were still very much catholic but or at least when when this whole thing started anyways but the the holy roman empire as well as spain which was also under a habsburg ruler at this point in time and they were trying to put down this uprising. And France went, well, if it's going to hurt the Habsburgs, we're in. Spain was a funny one. The, the, the Spanish uh, Inquisition was still going strong there, which was kind of a really good example of how not to handle the Reformation in a lot of ways. But yeah. the Inquisition had started before the Reconquista. So while there were still Muslims in Spain, they hadn't all been driven out of Spain. Uh, that happened in 1492 that they finally exhausted them. And once they were gone... The Inquisition kind of turned their attention to Jews living in Spain. And they yeah. were kind of running out of Jews to, to pester, basically. They that's, either That's another thing of this story where, like, you know, there's a lot of moments throughout this story where these standing armies found, a, you know, time here and there to seriously persecute and murder a lot of Jewish people. Well, I think as an overall theme, you should really consider the Reformation as a, a really, really difficult process of Europe coming to terms with the idea of outgroups. And I mean, even to this day, that's not something they're entirely comfortable with. But the level to which Europe was cohesive before the Reformation, it, it was basically the same country with a couple of dialects and some weird, you know, you know, some oddball local laws, essentially, compared to what you're going to see afterwards anyways. Yeah. And you know what? They weren't okay with outgroups. And they weren't okay with the Jews being there because they didn't put mostly because they didn't participate actively in civil life, largely because they weren't allowed to, but they were also seen as outsiders. Even if you could, you wouldn't. Exactly. Therefore, we won't let you. Therefore, we won't let you. And and that's the same reason that you see the persecution of the, the radical ref, uh, reformers, that they won't participate in civil life, that they're seen as outsiders, that they're seen as different, uh, as purposefully different, and, and therefore maliciously different. You know, and, and this whole time, Europe's trying to come to terms with that idea of, like, how can somebody be so different as to interpret your religion differently, but still be, you know, your neighbor? Yeah. And that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, no, people still have trouble not. with it all the time today, let, let alone five centuries ago. Well, yeah, and you see it all throughout history, too. I mean, like, same sort of elements happen during... American Revolution oh, absolutely. and all sorts of events like that. Well, I mean, I mean the, the, the great irony of this is that that's the reason that the Christians were persecuted under Roman law in the very first place was because they weren't willing to participate oh, in the yeah. state there's, religion. There's definitely a lot of like tragic, cyclical yeah. 
elements here in a lot of these stories. Absolutely. Like groups that groups that were pretty much forged at being persecuted ended up turning around and just doing the exact same thing mm-hmm. to other, you know, disadvantaged groups. Yeah, another thing that I mentioned in the uh, the heretics, uh, the, the witch trials episodes, is that a lot of the things that the, the Catholic Church would bring to bear against heretics as being, like, you, you know, subhuman acts that they were involved in or allegedly involved in were things that they had been that the the catholic church had been accused of in like the second and third centuries by the romans which is really interesting Mm -hmm. um anyways that's that's completely off topic still um the 80 years war the main like key point here for the reformation was that there was a, a period in there uh known as the 12 years peace which you know i guess means that it was more like a 78 year old war but whatever during this peace, part of the peace negotiations involved a formal rec- uh, recognition of the Dutch Republic. So that coalition of little principalities that had declared their independence from the Holy Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. In order to negotiate a peace, you can't negotiate a peace with an uprising. You can't, like, if, if, if citizens are rioting in the streets, there's no one there with the authority to sign. Uh, recognizing the political legitimacy of this splinter state. And that state splintered entirely because of their uh, desire for freedom of worship. I mean, this this is having like major real political repercussions all over Europe. The French wars of religion, 1562 through to like 1598 or so, where different royal houses in France took up the mantle of Protestantism as a rallying banner behind which they could oppose the the uh, the ruling family the bourbons they they become they they would become known as the huguenots or huguenot and and the huguenot would have like major persecution issues throughout french history but you know this is it's not just about using politics to gain freedom of religion it's also about using religion to gain freedom of politics it's about mm-hmm. using religion to shake up the existing political order because when when the king of france is divinely appointed which is the the natural order of the universe at this point in time you can't oppose him at all because his uh, his authority comes from god but if you don't believe in the same structure of the universe if you believe that you know god doesn't actually really support this king because god doesn't really support the pope and the pope is the one that says to support the king it gives you the latitude to rebel and there were major there were major internal problems in France, and this gave them an outlet. It gave them an excuse to air these political grievances. The wars of religion ended again in technical uh, Catholic victory. The the Bourbon family stayed in power, but the Huguenots ended up gaining massive uh, political rights and freedoms, even the freedom to participate in civil life as non Catholics, which is completely unheard of. Like, they're, they're not Catholics. What are they doing participating in civil life? According to the old order, they they are, they're, they're not fit to yeah to particip- participate in any way. They're not morally sound people. They should not be allowed to participate. All of a sudden now, they're being allowed. I mean, civil participation at this point in time is fairly limited as it is, but just the fact that they've been given that right at all is a big deal. Yeah. But again, technical Catholic victory. Hmm. There's the English Civil War, which mainly saw subjugation of a good chunk of Catholic uh, Ireland into Protestant Ireland, which we all know causes major problems later on in the 20th century. I wonder how that all turned out. 
but it also saw the the suppression of papists in England and and really the the civil war was an opportunity for them to kind of take out their issues with religion that had been going on the last hundred years with uh you know the, the transition from Henry VIII and uh you know through the rest of the the Tudors into the Stuarts this transition from Catholicism into Protestantism they began seeing the Catholics as as the enemy and as a dangerous group that needed to be suppressed. So it really helped to cement Protestantism in England. Again, it, you know, it's, it's using these political, or it's using religion to further political ends. The final one I wanted to mention is the Thirty Years' War. This is something that it should probably take, again, probably its own episode, just because it's crazy. But it's probably, it, but it's also one of the most important things to happen in shaping our modern understanding of the world short of the French Revolution. If the French Revolution hadn't happened, we would point to this as the thing that created the modern world. Because the Thirty Years' War is fought between the Habsburg allies, who are all Catholic, so Spain and, and uh, Holy Roman Empire mainly, against a, a whole league of Protestant German states who, had, who are trying to split away, uh, as well as at varying points in the war, France, England, and, and uh, various other Protestant states. We won't go through the whole thing. The way this shakes out, though, is with the Peace of Westphalia. The Peace of Westphalia does a couple things. Number one, it ends the 80 Years' War, the, the War of Dutch Independence. Mm -hmm. So that's finally done. But it also does an interesting thing in defining statehood in Europe. It takes that piece of Augsburg that we talked about earlier, where princes can, can choose their own state religion. Yeah. And it forces everyone in Europe to adopt that same tenet for freedom of religion, freedom of worship throughout Europe. This is, you know, the Peace of Westphalia is 1648. So we're more than a century after the Reformation begins. And there's been this turmoil throughout. There's been religious fighting. There's been violence in between groups that isn't state sanctioned. It's been really difficult for the entire con uh, continent. This piece basically, number one, it expands it to include Calvinism as well as just Lutheranism okay. uh, and Catholicism. And yeah, number two, it expands it so that France has to do the same. It has to recognize the legitimacy of a Protestant German state. It has to as part of the peace treaty terms. Spain has to do the same. And the Holy Roman Emperor has to allow Protestant states to exist because what you have here is a separation of moral authority from the Vatican over specific states and vests that authority in the states themselves. It basically creates the modern understanding of a nation state. It gives them self-determination. It gives them uh, non-interference in domestic affairs. So if I don't like what you're doing in your country, I can't come over there and bother you about it if you're okay with it. If you're the leader of that country. So it's like setting up the modern state structure. Exactly. Yeah, because before this, if you were Protestant and I was Catholic and everything was hunky-dory in your state, but I just decided that I didn't like the fact that you were Protestant and I went to the Pope and said, hey, these guys are Protestant. I kind of want to do something about it. And the Pope said, okay, I would feel fully justified and not only on a political end, but on a moral end and on a spiritual end to come and invade you. And that's not self-determination. That's not non-interference. Today, that would be unthinkable. Can you imagine if one if one country invaded another because they didn't like their tax policies or, you know, like it, it's just or their system of government? Well, yeah, exactly. I, say I, recognize, crazy. I recognize the irony of this statement. 
and sometimes we have to talk about these things in uh in terms of the way that they're supposed to work rather than the way they actually yeah. work in the world because in general westphalian statehood is the norm in in today's in today's world yes it gets violated that's a problem absolutely but you know the way we think about uh sovereignty is based in this now it changes again subtly during the the french revolution but this is where we start seeing states being allowed to do what they want without fear of outside interference and that's that's a long way from where we were in 1517 when Luther nails the theses to the door who would have known that him just wanting the pope to cut it out with those indulgences already would result in a lot of ways in in the the modern structure oh, Leo. of yes sh- you, sh- you shouldn't have done that leo should have just set up a kickstarter yeah just it would have been so much easier anything you guys could donate would be great <laughs> the 10 dollar level yeah. sending out cards um <laughs> I'm going to give you a private tour for our top raiders. Yeah, absolutely. Top donators. Uh, But yeah, I I mean, that is how states relate to one another today. That is how diplomacy works today, is is the Westphalian model. And the Westphalian model was also all about setting up spheres of influence and uh, a balance of power within Europe. It was like, okay, here are our major powers, and they are big enough that none of them is big enough to take on all the other ones on their own. None of them are small enough. They're going to get steamrolled by one other one on their own. Uh, there's a balance in Europe. And that balance basically stays there until World War One. And then nothing bad ever happens <laughs> nothing bad again. Happened. But World War One is often looked at as an extension of the Napoleonic Wars or even as an extension of the French Revolution. But in a lot of ways, it's an extension of the, the Peace of Westphalia, which is one of the reasons I kind of want to look at it in some more depth at one point. I also mentioned it in a lot of episodes that's been a running theme on this show is the piece of westphalia but well now everybody gets it now everybody understands where it all came from well they, they, they at least understand the upheaval that led to needing to create such a drastic change in the way that nations relate to each other mm-hmm. it's all about religious freedom and it's all about a movement towards individualism and it's all about an explosion of literacy and an explosion of uh, informed citizenship, which is a really amazing thing to come out of one dude with a uh, with a tray of pewter letters and some ink. Pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy stuff. So that's that's the Reformation. That's where it gets us. We have a whole bunch of different denominations that don't get along with each other all that well, but are really fairly close at the at the at the root of things, at the heart of things. Yeah. You have a bunch of nations that have finally figured out a way to get out of out from under the thumb of of authoritarian regimes that they didn't have an escape plan from before. You have a complete transformation of the uh, diplomatic structure. You have a complete rehaul of the existing uh, Catholic Church as well as the new Protestant churches. And the way that people in their everyday lives think about their relationship to their religion, to, to God, has fundamentally and forever changed. Yeah. That's a crazy hundred years. The craziest hundred years. I'd wager. <laughs> I mean, I think there are worse contenders. I think you could do worse. Mm-hmm. So that's the Reformation. Was there anything that we went way too fast over that you wanted to talk about more? Were there any points no, that seemed that's, really No, that's unclear, like the perfect or... summary of just like, you know, I think it's good to cover, you know, all the things you did, like, the birth of 
agency for the regular person. Humanism like, is a major milestone in in our in, in modern society. Yeah, it's all a really of these things thing. we take for granted as just being like regular things. Even even often today, like aspiritual things, like non not like like secular things, like yeah. humanism seem or is 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 presented today as a very like this non-religious say thing. That this is kind of like not maybe the birth of secularism, but it sets the stage. Secularism couldn't happen without yeah without something very similar to what happens here. Yeah, it it creates maybe a more fertile. Well, breeding what, ground. What is secularism kind of... but the the separation of private spiritual life from uh, public society and from a larger entity? It's it's allowing people the freedom to express themselves spiritually while still being a part of larger society. Because that's what happened before this. If you expressed yourself differently spiritually, you were immediately removing yourself from society as a whole. Yeah, that that was an act of of, of cultural defiance. Now, if you and I go to different churches, we can still be friends, usually, in general. Well, like I was saying, uh, a couple years ago, finally the Lutheran Church and mm-hmm. the Mennonite Church got together, had a three-year study, and at a conference, finally, officially, the Lutheran Church apologized. Really? And, uh, yeah, they're buddies now. That's nice. Yeah, five 500 years later. <laughs> I think that's a great place to end it. Yep. Thanks so much for coming on today. I really enjoyed this talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. What a what a great subject matter. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. The list of effects the Reformation had on European society is long enough to be virtually endless. So suffice it to say that it's one of the most underrated social revolutions in European history. The level to which it changed almost every aspect of most people's lives is almost overwhelming in its breadth and scope. Next time, we'll be talking about Vlad the Impaler, or at least mostly about him as we use him as a lens through which to examine early Ottoman influence in Eastern Europe. But lots about the vampire stuff too. That episode will be up December 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.